Good morning and welcome to Rising. We have a jam-packed and exciting show for you today. Brianna, what's in store for us? Well, we'll be covering the abortion memo leak from many angles today. We'll get into Senator Elizabeth Warren's warning that if Roe v. Wade is stricken down, it will impact working class women the most. And many are questioning what rights beyond abortion will be at risk if the high court overturns the 1972 landmark decision on a woman's right to choose. But before we dive into that, the Supreme Court has confirmed that the leak is authentic. Chief Justice Roberts called the infraction an egregious breach of trust and has ordered an investigation into its occurrence. Meanwhile, President Biden has said he is, quote, not prepared to support ending the Senate filibuster as calls for such a move from abortion rights activists and Democratic lawmakers mount in order to codify Roe v. Wade into law. So what do you think about, I, I was hearing a lot of, uh, well, I think, Chad, are most, mostly from Republicans that, like, you know, identify and prosecute this person, you know, <laughs> execute for treason kind of talk. Yeah, big uh, authoritarian energy coming a, from the right. A bit authoritarian. However, okay, and, you know, so I'm generally supportive of protections for leakers and whistleblowers, et cetera, who share things the government is hiding from us. This is... A little different because, I mean, I, I think it's considerably different. The Supreme Court is supposed to have a coll collegial process. There should be some good faith and some, I, th I think, there should, they should have a general understanding of, of, of ability to, you know, talk behind closed doors and come to uh, consensus. I, I certainly wouldn't... I, I don't know that I would prosecute if we could identify the person who right. did this. Right. What, what is the I'm law that's it, been but, broken is right. the question I would like someone to answer. Because, you know, I clerked, not at this level, but I clerked for a federal district court in the Eastern District of New York. And the rules, the mythology around what happens in chambers stays in chambers are very strong. You're not supposed to allude to cases that you've worked on. You're not supposed to talk about the conversations that you had with your judge. And I always felt it was a little almost culty the way that people take it very, very seriously, but it's a code of honor. It's not a, an NDA. I didn't sign a document saying I would never talk about anything that happened in chambers. It's just a professional ethics. So while some people obviously are not happy with the leak because they think it might put undue pressure on the conservatives to switch their views from what seems to be the consensus in this opinion, it's not illegal. And the calls to right. lock whatever 27-year-old clerk probably did this up in jail because they don't like a political outcome is downright authoritarian. Yeah, I, so I think I agree, right? I would not, I would definitely fire this person if I figured out who. Sure. They should lose their job. They should sure. not, they should probably not work in. Professional consequences I'm sure will abound. Yeah. So, well, the professional consequence if it turns out it's some liberal progressive abortion rights defender who did this is they will be lionized and celebrated as a hero and they'll get <laughs> they'll be They'll get courage awards and ACLU awards. They'll probably be able to be president of the ACLU within a year. So the, I, the consequences will actually not be stark. Well, it's the consequences in the legal context that I would right. worry about. And these judges obviously are very influential. Many um, judges have worked at law firms previously. Mm -hmm. And if there were was a hope among the clerk that you would go and work at the law firm that your, clerk, your judge worked for, which was the case for me, there might be some professional uh, uh, implications there. Who knows? But I, I take your point. This person is probably not going to be hurting for having career opportunities down the line. If it was, in fact, a liberal, there are some people who think it was a conservative who was trying to make sure that everyone stays in line I was someone's on the fence. I was seeing, just before we started um, recording today, I was looking on Twitter and I was seeing a little bit of theorizing about who it might be that I found persuasive, but it's totally speculation, so I'm, I'm not going to discuss it beyond that, <laughs> but I, I, I found it kind of persuasive. So. Yes. 
Well, anyway, Senator Susan Collins has, quote, expressed concern over the draft, saying it's completely inconsistent with what Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh said in their hearings and in our meetings in my office. Here's Collins on Kavanaugh's views of Roe. I do not believe that Brett Kavanaugh will overturn His precedents Roe are overturned. He noted that Roe had been reaffirmed 19 years later by Planned Parenthood versus Casey and that it was precedent on precedent. He said it should be extremely rare that it be overturned and it should be an example. So you have obviously full confidence. I do. If she's feeling betrayed, it would be understandable. She is more than any one senator responsible for Brett Kavanaugh being on the Supreme Court. She famously gave that speech, a speech I think is one of the most effective, powerful, even if you don't like and disagree with what she was doing, a, a very effective speech where she stood up and finally said, enough is enough. We should we should confirm this man. This has gone to like show trial levels. Um, it, a, a really effective modern political speech. If anybody hasn't seen it, you should look it up. Uh, so... The question, of course, is you know whether she's being since because she I, I know what you're going to say is that she <laughs> We're is a at fair that. weather so, right he, with, with full knowledge that this did imperil Roe. We, we are looking at the most gullible woman in America. If she I don't really, think she's gullible. I think she's, she's look, savvy. Maybe she's savvy. Maybe she's gullible. Gullible. If it's the latter, I have some timeshares that I'd like to offer her up for uh, <laughs> way overpriced. I don't think she's. But gullible. That, that is why so many people are upset and more upset around the time of Kavanaugh. There were many folks, including lots of folks in the Democratic Party who said over and over again that they didn't think that Roe was really imperiled. Leaders of the Democratic Party, um, like Nancy Pelosi, so they didn't actually think she gave an interview to Kara Switcher on her New York Times podcast, I believe in 2020, in the lead up to the election, saying, "Uh, I don't really think there's any risk that Roe would actually be overturned. There was a belief among many Democrats that the political backlash for Republicans wouldn't be worth the squeeze and that it benefited both parties to kind of have it hanging in the balance as a threat so that each could use it as a cudgel to get their voters to the polls, even if they didn't like the figurehead that was running, whether it's Trump or Joe Biden or, or what have you. Although I guess to be fair, when Kavanaugh replaced, or it was Kennedy, Kavanaugh replaced Kennedy. So at that time, like Roe was not under threat. Mm-hmm. Roe was under threat when Barrett replaced Ginsburg. So at the time Kavanaugh was confirmed, what Susan Collins saying, that was not changing the composition of the Supreme Court enough sure. to imperil Roe. It Although was, your it was perception... Ginsburg holding on not quite until the very end. Sure, <laughs> yeah, that, that's what I was going to yeah. say. Your threat perception depends on how confident you were that Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer while Obama was still president, was going to... Uh, persist. Yeah, well, she wanted uh, Clinton maybe to pick her successor. Yeah, the hubris is toxic (laughs) at this point. (laughs) If the Supreme Court does strike down Roe, here's where abortion would be immediately banned. And across the country, protesters are gathering in large numbers. Of course, here in front of the Supreme Court, a huge crowd formed yesterday. On the other coast in Los Angeles, near where Kim is, actually, there were more protests. And so here's some uh, footage from that. Um, not surprising. I'm still, so I know that Roe v. Wade has a lot of, uh, support borne out in polling and survey data. You know, most Americans think abortion should be legal in some cases. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I guess I count myself as among the squishy middle of people who think there should be some limits, but not entirely Mm -hmm. limited at all. Um, so I can see how this is potentially a political I- issue that 
in theory could play to some Democratic advantage. On the other hand, I mean, Republicans have been, Republican activists, the, the, the religious conservatives, have wanted this for literally for decades. I mean, the, the object of obtaining power was to do this eventually. It was like the main object. So mm-hmm. having finally positioned themselves to do it, they really, they would have failed their own most active and politically interested base to not pull that off. So there is some historical debate about the extent to which uh, abortion rights became a a linchpin of the conservative movement, not at the beginning of the advent of the Federalist Society and a lot of the legal interventions that were designed as a long-term plan to shift the courts, right? But a little bit later on, there's some early documents that show that in the internal discussions, they thought that the abortion issue was uh, something that only kind of crazy fringe evangelicals Mm -hmm. cared about. And it wasn't until later that they realized the power that stoking Mm -hmm. that that particular cultural battle uh, had originally, and the, the the grand total of what these five four decisions, when you look at them, um, the fi- all the five four decisions that lean uh, Republican, overwhelmingly are about expanding uh, financial economic rights of financial elites for the right. That's that's the primary goal, and has always been the primary goal of the Federal Society and the push rightward on the court. However, of course, now it has become a central linchpin issue, and I think you're right. It, is, it will be interesting to see whether or not they can back away from this ledge, even if it were to have bad electoral consequences, because it's something that's been so central to the project for so long. I do think, though, even if it does redound in some small benefit for liberals come election season, they're so far in the hole that a little frustration or a lot of frustration over losing the right to choose isn't going to really change the broad uh, electoral map. And at the end of the year. That's a, that's a dep- depressing evaluation if you're a Democrat. I, I could be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we'll keep this discussion going later, uh, and I'm looking forward to hearing what's on your radar next, Brianna. Brianna, what's on your radar? Well, as you all probably know by now, Monday, a draft opinion of a Supreme Court case overturning Roe v. Wade was leaked to Politico. The case involves a 15-week abortion ban that contains no exceptions for incest or rape. Although Roe v. Wade is the case that initially established abortion as a constitutional right, the current standard is Planned Parenthood v. Casey. And Casey says the government cannot prohibit a woman from seeking an abortion before the age of viability currently around 23 or 24 weeks. Now, if the draft opinion is, in fact, representative of the majority of the Supreme Court's view, it will have the effect of ending the constitutional right to an abortion. Going forward, states will have the power to promulgate laws that limit abortion access absolutely, regardless of whether conception occurred as a result of rape, incest, whether the pregnancy threatens the mother's life, or even whether the fetus is viable. Currently, 22 states have total or near-total abortion bans on the books. Now, this outcome is contrary to what a majority of Americans believe should happen. 54% of Americans believe Roe should be upheld. Only 28% believe it should be overturned. 60% say that their state should either make abortion easier to access or keep access the same, while only one in four say it should be harder. Overwhelming majorities say that abortion should be legal if a woman's health is endangered in cases of rape, incest, or serious birth defects. The fact that this court opinion is so out of step with public opinion has led some to argue that the decision is an example of inappropriate judicial activism. 
As Fox's Ian Milheiser put it, the opinion was written and joined by, quote, five unelected aristocrats, three of whom were appointed by a professional con man who received three million fewer votes than Hillary Clinton and decided to do a tyranny. <laughs> but as Glenn Greenwald pointed out in a recent piece on his Substack, this is the whole point of the Supreme Court. It was designed to be an anti-majoritarian check on majoritarian power. The Federalist Papers are clear about the perceived danger of factions united against the rights of other citizens. As Glenn writes, when the court strikes down laws that majorities support, it may be a form of judicial tyranny if the invalidated law does not violate any actual rights enshrined in the Constitution. But the mere judiciary act of invalidating a law supported by a majority of citizens, though frequently condemned as undemocratic, is in fact a fulfillment of one of the court's prime functions in a republic, which is what we have, a republic, not a direct democracy. Now, many people were angry at Glenn for this take because they read it as Glenn agreeing that there is no constitutional right to abortion or making some, um, making some moral claim and siding with uh, anti-abortion activists. But Glenn's argument was narrower than that. He's simply pointing to a basic truth. You can make the argument that the Constitution does, in fact, provide for the right to choose by reading an applicable right to privacy clause in it. But abortion access having popular support is not a basis for dismissing the opinion. If you have a problem with the Supreme Court having an anti-majoritarian bias, you have to change the court. And many legal scholars have argued that the fix we need is to rein in the power of the Supreme Court, either by eliminating it altogether or by significantly weakening it. Now, that might sound severe, but consider this. The court's authority to review legislation and invalidate it on the basis of its unconstitutionality was itself claimed by the court in an act of judicial activism. It's not constitutionally or legislatively provided. Marbury v. Madison, the 1803 case in which the Supreme Court claimed for itself the power known as judicial review, has been settled law for over 200 years. But the fact that the precedent has been in place for a long time is not a barrier to overturning said law. Just look at Roe v. Wade, settled law for nearly 50 years. So what would the world look like with a diminished Supreme Court? Well, without judicial review, the emphasis would return to the democratically elected legislature. If it were to promulgate a federal law, it could only be undone legislatively, not by judicial fiat. Now, you might be concerned that the system of checks and balances between the courts and the legislative branch is there to protect minorities against the tyranny of the majority, as the Federalists are thought to have intended. But in practice, there are but a small minority of cases in which the Supreme Court has protected the rights of vulnerable groups. Most often, it protects an elite minority. Harvard professor Nico Bowie, who testified last summer at Biden's Commission on Court Reform, argues that historically, when there's been a disagreement between the court and the legislature involving the constitutionality of the law, the court has ruled in a way that is bad for populist rights. Listen to this back and forth between Nico and conservative jurist Elon uh, Werman, who also spoke at Biden's Supreme Court hearings last year. Even if a wealth tax is unconstitutional at the national level, I don't think it would be unconstitutional at the state level. Let's say the Affordable Care Act is unconstitutional under the Commerce Clause. I'm not saying that it is. Um, it's not. But, cert uh, 
Okay, fine. Uh, but Romney <laughs> care certainly was constitutional. So you want 390 million Americans to be able to govern themselves. But I think a lot of what the Supreme Court does is it stops Congress from doing things that imposes a uniform role among the states. And the alternative would be, you know, California can go its way, can have a wealth tax, can have a carbon tax, can do, you know, um, a Romney care or Newsom care, whatever it would be in California, and let Texas do something different. And God forbid that there'd be some diversity. So why isn't that like a perfectly reasonable vision of the court's role, keeping Congress right. in check okay, and letting the so states let, do things? Yeah, so, so let, let, let's look at the history of the court's relationship to Congress. When the court has said, let's let the states do this, the first time was, hmm, we think the states should decide whether slavery should exist. Congress has no role in policing slavery. Hmm, we think the states should decide whether lynching is punished. We don't need Congress or a federal anti-lynching law to do this. Hmm, we think the state should decide whether an anti-discrimination law should pass. We shouldn't have a federal anti-discrimination law. Hmm, we think the state should decide whether there's a wealth tax. We shouldn't have a federal wealth tax. Hmm, we think the state should decide whether there's a child labor law. We shouldn't have a federal child labor law. Hmm, we think the state should decide what to do about... You, know, I mean, you can go on. It's just whenever the but, Supreme Court says, let's let the states do it, it's to protect the but, interest but, 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 of... In an article covering Bowie's remarks at Biden's hearing on the Supreme Court, Joel Mathis wrote, over the last two centuries, the court has used its power to strike down or narrow federal laws that limited the spread of slavery, discouraged child labor, protected voting rights, and restricted the role of big money in politics. Defenders of the Supreme Court's power say justices can protect political minorities from congressional attempts to step on their rights. But Bowie said the theory has rarely worked in practice. Bowie, quoting Bowie, the court has been silent at best when Congress and the president have violently dispossessed native tribes, excluded Chinese immigrants, persecuted political dissidents, withheld civil rights from U.S. citizens and territories, and banned Muslim refugees. Combined with the lifetime terms for justices, he said, the political choices available to us as a country depend not on our collective will, but on the will of people who hold their offices until they resign or die. This is precisely what the Declaration of Independence protested. And even if for some reason you don't care about all those pretty severe infringements on American freedom, it is precisely because of judicial review that Democrats have been able to disguise their complete and total failure to legislate. They've been delegating lawmaking to the court while using the Supreme Court appointments as a cudgel to ensure voters continue to vote blue no matter who, even though the party rarely accomplishes anything. Case in point, the lack of abortion legislation. Despite Roe being decided in 1972, and despite overwhelming support for at least some degree of abortion access, Democrats have failed to codify Roe. Barack Obama wrote a two-page missive yesterday on how terrible it would be for Roe to be overturned. But nowhere in this self-righteous ode does he acknowledge his own role in the crisis. In 2007, he claimed that the first thing he'd do as president would be to sign the Freedom of Choice Act, codifying Roe. By 2009, he changed his tune, saying the bill was, quote, not my highest legislative priority. Biden also ran on codifying Roe, but he has firmly resisted getting rid of the filibuster so that Democrats could actually do so with their narrow Senate majority. As friend of the show David Sirota wrote recently, there is already legislation introduced in Congress to do this. It is called the Women's Health Protection Act. It already has 48 sponsors in the Senate, and its core precepts are widely popular according to survey data. And yet Democrats do nothing. 
Biden was recently asked if he would consider eliminating the filibuster in the face of this Roe opinion. His answer? I'm not, I'm not prepared to make those judgments now about, uh, but you know, uh, I think the codification of Roe makes a lot of sense. Look, think what Roe says. Roe says what all basic mainstream religions have historically concluded, that the, right, that the existence of a human life and being is a question. Is it at the moment of conception? Is it six months? Is it six weeks? Is it, is it quickening like Aquinas argued? I mean, so the idea that we're going to make a judgment that is going to say that no one can make the judgment to choose to abort a child based on a decision by the Supreme Court, I think goes way overboard. After that dodge, I can see why Biden's so attached to the filibuster. <laughs> the only thing the Democrats seem good at is making money off of the issue of abortion. Yesterday, Biden had the audacity to issue a statement that was little more than a get out the vote slash fundraising email. Quote, if the court does overturn Roe, he wrote, it will fall on voters to elect pro-choice officials this November. One Biden advisor told reporter MJ Lee that, quote, this will have an extraordinary galvanizing force with some of the very Americans who don't always turn out or weren't really looking to the midterms yet. Some leftists are starting to believe that Democrats want abortion rights hanging in the wind so they can continue to pressure disaffected voters to the polls. That's the whole game. But even if you aren't that cynical, here's what we do know. Women's rights are hanging in the balance because Democratic politicians, ignoring populist majorities behind them, have been afraid of the so-called culture wars. They've chosen to timidly court conservative minorities instead of passing laws that majorities want. Hillary Clinton picked anti-abortion Tim Kaine as her VP. And we all know that that really helped her to bring all the conservative boys to the yard. <laughs> Pelosi's daughter, Christine, spent the night of the leak blaming the left for the erosion of abortion rights. But her mother, Nancy, has argued that focusing on abortion access is hurting Democrats and has seemingly worked overtime to make the Democratic Party a safe space for the anti-Roe minority. As friend of the show, Irene Osei Frimprong has argued, the Dems have spent my entire life convincing Americans that the only thing they can do is appoint judges to, the to do the governing for them. Now they failed at that. They're looking to blame leftists and Susan Sarandon, but they need to take a good hard look in the mirror. Marion Williamson put it best. I don't know which is worse, the way Republicans abuse power or the way Democrats refuse to use it when they have it. I think it's a toss up, Marianne, but I have a good idea why growing numbers of Americans are identifying as independent and looking for a third party. The solution to judicial activism, whether by the right or the left, may be to limit the power of the Supreme Court power it arguably only has because of judicial activism. The founding fathers wanted checks and balances to preserve the rights of economic elites, not persecuted minorities, and the court has been extremely effective in doing so. I would argue that 200 years of that is enough. Now, Robbie, I know this is we big have, talk. We have some disagreements here. <laughs> yeah, we, hit, uh... hit me. What's on your mind? Um... Look, this might just be a, a result of, frankly, our different ideologies. Uh, I can see why you might say that the Supreme Court has mostly been negative or serving as a check on uh, laws or policies you would like to pass. From my perspective, it has. while there are plenty of Supreme Court and other court decisions I don't agree with or that have gone the wrong way or that have not protected rights I think ought to be protected, 
I can also think of a lot of cases of the Supreme Court and, and certainly other courts striking down laws that were enacted by idiotic legislatures that violate our rights that may have been supported by Maybe, huge majorities. Because I can think of about three. There's a lot on 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 uh, on speech, all the speech-related uh, cases for the last um, 20 years, the gr- extreme expansion of our First Amendment rights what, what's from an the Westboro of a Church. Federal law limiting speech the, and the Supreme Court has struck down. Because I can think flag of, burning, or that was a state law. State this, law. this is this is right. Nico's point because we went back and forth in this in this episode, and the third person who didn't speak, uh, a law professor from Georgia, Eric Stiegel, he was kind of open to the argument but wanted to press back against Nico and say it cannot be that there are not these examples. He, he tried to come up with a, a, a counterexample. I encourage people to go watch that full clip on YouTube. Come up with a counterexample that said, well, what if the government passed this terrible law that was so obviously bad and hurt all of these Americans? And he couldn't do so because at the end of the day, when things are so obviously bad, they don't reach this level. Legislatures don't push stuff like that through. They can't make it through on a federal level. There's Already, that kind of built. What about all the, the all the expansion our of our of our um, uh, due process rights, search and seizure rights, name all the, that name stuff? A, name the, a case. The, I, I'm, well, I'm I open the to it. The names of the case are, but the ones during the Warren era, the the. So this this the is Miranda. Miranda. <laughs> this was the Warren the the one instance where there were a lot of federal laws uh, that were frankly great, and they were not allowed by the Supreme Court. They were, the Supreme Court was striking them all down. What against about sodomy? Democratic- what about was, gun rights? What that's, about... That's the thing. At the end of the day... Well, I know those Nico are state was, laws, but, what, but I would like those state laws struck down by well, the Supreme the, Court. The, the, you're not getting rid of the federal district courts. There's The rest of the court system remains in place. But the problem with the Supreme Court is it's able to strike down federal law. And when there's a... Nico's solid point is when there is a conflict between what federal legislatures... Democratically elected legislatures think is constitutional and what the uh, Supreme Court, these unelected jurists think is constitutional. The tipping point should go to the federal legislature because at very least there was a democratic accountability system built in there that doesn't exist. The the only reason thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of private sector workers all around the country are not required to get vaccinated is because the Supreme Court said no to it. It wasn't a federal law because the federal government doesn't even make laws anymore. They don't even they don't even think they have to. They just use their massive bureaucracy agencies to do whatever they want. And the Supreme Court occasionally holds them in check. And I think that's an important thing. And I think that we should live in a world where it's a lot more common and normal to change laws, to amend the Supreme Court, to have people have an active and democratic interest in changing the rules and laws in our government, not expecting to rely on a bunch of unelected people acting on fiat to change the laws that happen to work out for us in some cases. But in all of the instances that uh, Nico set out, if you were Dred Scott trying to ride a, a train and being told that, no, you can't because you're a black man or any of the other overwhelming instances that have occurred throughout history where the Supreme Court has upheld the right to intern Japanese citizens and on and on and on down the line. I humbly suggest that a mask mandate isn't worth all of that. If we have a, if we had a SCOTUS that better reflected my views, they should strike down the Patriot Act. They should strike down things of that nature. But it, it should, the argument is that it shouldn't be SCOTUS. It should be democracy. And that the, the it problem be SCOTUS is because those law, the Patriot Act violates our very basic. Look, there, most countries don't have a Supreme Court. Countries that we think are very democratic, like the United Kingdom, don't have a Supreme Court. And this is another uh, argument that Nico makes. We, I think, have America brand. We, ha- we have a very hard time thinking about how the wor- world could work outside of the institutions that we're very familiar with. And I think at very least, even if people aren't really to hop on board and push all of the, the justices out of the building, to say, at very least, let's have the thought experiment about how to better design our system. The founding fathers were just human beings that designed a system. They weren't sent tablets down from 
Moses well, I'm not, on the mountain. I'm not, argue, I'm not arguing about that. But I, I want a Supreme Court that vehemently strikes down laws that violate the rights that are protected under our Bill of Rights. And I want our rights to be more responsive to the democratically elected uh, legislature and for the people to feel like they have an opportunity to actually make the, the changing winds of popular consensus felt in our government and not be relying on standards from 200 years ago. That is the difference. <laughs> well, thank you for that back and forth, Robbie. We will have more rising after this. New reporting from the Wall Street Journal alleges that Elon Musk plans to take Twitter public again in as soon as three years. Now, according to the journal, Musk has been talking to private equity firms about injecting much-needed cash into the social media platform. This comes as major corporations such as Coca-Cola, Disney, and Kraft are facing major pressure to boycott Twitter should Musk choose to roll back the platform's content moderation policies limiting disinformation. As reported by CNN, more than two dozen civil society groups addressed the companies in a joint letter, writing, quote, as top advertisers on Twitter, your brand risks association with a platform amplifying hate, extremism, health misinformation, and conspiracy theorists. Your ad dollars can either fund Musk's vanity project or hold him to account. Oh, Ugh, who are those people? I mean, that's I, I, pretty I, obnoxious, I, yeah. This, you know, anything that's an opposing view now has been labeled as hate, extremism, disinformation, misinformation. And this is the problem. This is why Elon Musk is trying to take back Twitter and why so many people are championing it because they're saying, finally, we need somebody to go in there and say, you can't just label anything you don't agree with as some sort of extremism that must be silenced and censored. I don't know why Democrats have just have have adopted this sort of censorship czar authoritarian mm -hmm. position. Yeah, at least wait for him to do something first. I mean, he hasn't even done the thing. <laughs> right, right, right. If they could point to a specific example and be like, oh, here is something, here's a policy, or here's now a, a kind of content that is more frequent on Twitter that we think is bad and we don't like this change, but they can't even point to anything like that yet. Right. Which forces us to go backward and look at, so you mean you want more of like Hunter Biden laptops? type stuff taken right. down or lab leak type stuff taken down thing you know just moderation decision i always bring those two up because they're to my mind the most prominent examples of 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 bad social media calls that were influenced by the very same kind of disinformation experts supposedly federal you know, former federal law law enforcement uh, intelligence analysts those kinds of people uh who who were wrong and so you know why is that why do we want to close off social media more to those kinds of things? Sure, nasty, you know, really nasty harassment, spamming type stuff. We don't want to see more of that. I don't think Elon but Musk also, wants to exists. see more of that. It exists, it exists right now. now. We live in a world yeah. where there are all these violence uh, prohibitions, but it was completely okay over the last couple of months to say you wanted to draw and quarter a Russian and hang him up by right. a flagpole. Like that, that kind of speech was not right. being censored, and it's all politically motivated. Also, people have no uh, confidence in the thing currently, at very least, let him violate some norm before you decide to frame him as this because of the, what's happening right. is that people are forced to defend him. I, I don't want to be in a position. Frankly, I have no high aspirations for what he's actually going to do and how t Twitter is going to change. I'm not confident the way that so many people are that it's going to necessarily change for the better. But I really would rather not be in a position of having to defend him the way I am now because he actually hasn't done anything that he's been accused like, of I, I just, yet. I just, yeah, I'm sitting here with my laptop open. I've, I have Twitter open. I just, someone just 
tweeted at me like a disgusting picture, I blocked them. Done. Like I did, I didn't need I don't need that account banned or moderated or I, I, or, or shielded from me. I just blocked them. Done. Yeah. Over. Taken care of. Yeah. There's no so new policy think, or different policy. Yeah. Do you guys think that these big companies like Coca-Cola, Disney, Kraft, do you think they're going to cave to this? I mean, it's kind of interesting. We've seen sort of the woke um, mentality mm-hmm. go into these corporations. And it makes me wonder, you know, where does this lead? So like if, for example, Coca-Cola says, all right, well, you know, we can't be involved with a platform that's going to uh, disseminate hate and extremism. So Will Coca-Cola, you know, does this lead to a point where Coca-Cola says we're not going to sell our products in Alabama, you know, for example, or because we don't agree with people? I mean, I think that would be pretty foolish. They have to be looking at all companies should be looking at the Disney DeSantis feud. Right. And saying themselves, "Eh, we don't need to get maybe we don't need to get super involved in which is kind of an interesting reversal, actually, of. Historic, you know, we've been talking a lot lately about moving further right or, f- or moving further left, uh, or how the parties have done that. Because Elon Musk, right, shared that that uh, picture on Twitter saying, "Well, the left has moved a lot farther left. The right hasn't moved that much." Uh, and this is an example where, yeah, the right, if anything, has almost moved. It's kind of confusing, but is not moved more right. They're they're, they're less in favor of corporate speech and corporate rights than they were before. Like they, it used to be like a very kind of yeah. conservative Republican, maybe like Mitt Romney circa 2012 opinion that, you know, corporate speech is valid and we don't, we don't want to limit, uh, limit corporate uh, advocacy in the political process. And now Republicans don't want corporate advocacy in the political process whatsoever. Well, I just want to clarify, and to your point, Kim, I don't think that they're going to bend the knee. I don't think that any uh, corporation is going to withdraw because they never do anything because of wokeness. They do things because it affects their bottom line. To the extent that they lose customers and their brand is tarnished by going so against what the popular trends are, they will bend the knee and do something that's so-called woke, but it's not coming from anybody's goodness of anybody's heart. I just recently watched, I don't know if you guys saw the Abercrombie and Fitch documentary on Netflix, and they had years and years of horrible, illegal, discriminatory practices where they were basically giving you like an Aryan test before you could come and work for the company. And everybody knew and nobody cared until culture shifted enough that it suddenly became distasteful to have these discriminatory hiring practices, to put minorities in the back rooms, to have- They discriminated against non-white people yeah they hired for the front of their store they were hiring only i was gonna say abercrombie models i thought they were discriminating against not super attractive people well that's that's the cover that they used for it but the very attractive people who weren't white working in the back disagreed Hmm. um but the the point is that they when when the hammer fell on them when it when the culture shifted enough that they couldn't make money anymore selling t-shirts with racist stuff about asian americans on them Right. Well, but there was, you know, last year when Georgia had the voting rights bill and a lot of companies boy started boycotting and wanting to leave Georgia. You know, we saw that. We also see, of course, with the war with Russia and Ukraine, uh, a lot of companies abandoning Russia. So I do think actually companies are heading down this path of uh, the public pressure and wanting to appear like they're on the right side of an issue, that they are actually starting to punish everyday citizens by saying, then we're not going to sell in your area. We even saw that. What was it? It was a, I feel like there was another example. Was that an ice cream one where they said, how, how dare you sell? I mean, oh, it was Ben and Jerry's. People were like trying to get Ben and Jerry's. They were trying to boycott Ben and Jerry's because Ben and Jerry's started boycotting the West Bank settlements, right? 
in Israel. And so people were upset about that. So we do see it. And sometimes you might agree with it. Like, for example, I might agree with Ben and Jerry's and them wanting to boycott selling in, in illegal settlements in the West Bank. But then there's, you know, other ones that maybe I don't agree with where it's like because of a voting rights law being passed in Georgia, companies like Coca-Cola say, I don't know, maybe we need to hightail it out of here or something. So I, I don't know. I kind of feel like that trend is starting to happen. Yeah, I mean, I said this yesterday, but I'm really concerned we're just going to get to a point where if you're part of Team Red, this is your cola company. If you're part of Team Blue, this is yours. And that just seems very unhealthy for modern society to go in that direction with literally everything. And also then what 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 cola brand am I supposed to drink for as someone who doesn't neatly fit into or agree with all the perspectives of either side? I, I guess I, we'll, we'll need a third uh Water is good for you, Robbie. It's it's God's juice. I I don't drink a lot of water. I do drink a lot of diet coke. Do not drink a lot of water. And a lot of coffee and a lot of wine. Well, anyway, what if wine goes woke, Robbie. Right. What, what's that? What? <laughs> Said you better hope you better hope wine doesn't go woke. Uh, that would be a that would be a, tr- a huge tragedy, an institution lost. All right, we'll be back with more rising right after this. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren gave a passionate speech on Capitol Hill yesterday in the wake of the abortion memo leak. Let's watch. This will fall on the poorest women in our country. This will fall on the young women who have been abused, who are victims of incest. This will fall on those who have been raped. This will fall on mothers who are already struggling to work three jobs to be able to support the children they have. Well, I am here because I am angry, and I am here because the United States Congress can change all of this. Yes, this sentiment was echoed by former Rising co-host and co-host of Breaking Points, Crystal Ball, in which she tweeted, Let's be clear, wealthy women will always have access to whatever doctors, medicines, and procedures that they want, ending Roe as an attack on the autonomy of poor and working class women. As a more perfect union points out, overturning Roe v. Wade is class warfare, financial hardship. It's the most common reason people seek an abortion. 51% of women in the landmark turnaway study were below the federal poverty line when they sought an abortion. 76% lacked the funds to cover basic living expenses. Here to discuss is Max Alvarez, editor-in-chief of The Real News and Newsweek contributor Denise Long. Welcome to you both. Thanks, Good guys. morning. Denise, what are you thinking about this subject? I'd love to just, you know, get your response to everything going on. Yeah, so I think there needs to be some context to Warren's statements. The percentage of women who get abortions from rape is about 1%, and then those from incest is like 0.5%. Uh, it is very true that most women who go seek abortions are at or below the poverty line, you know, that amount uh, for a two-person family. Um, they are predominantly white, uh, 39% or so, but a large percentage of them are black, about 28%, and then Hispanic, about 25 Those, of course, vary per state, uh, but that's about the national. Um, and they are also traditionally religious from Catholic to Protestant uh, and the like. And they are mostly women age 20 to 29, 
the vast majority of abortions happen, uh, and when I say vast majority, I'm talking upwards of 70% happen electively, meaning I'm not ready uh, at this moment. Um, it will not work with my life plans to have a ch another child at this moment because most people who get abortions have had at least one child. Uh, so there needs to be some serious context about what is happening. Uh, and, and what I would like to see is and I know this is a passionate, impassioned conversation for people to think about, but I think what we really need right now is reasoned, honest dialogue about what this potential ruling could mean and questions really of our states really ready and state leaders really ready from a moral character perspective to have this level of authority uh, about any number of things that this decision will open the open the opportunity to change. Denise, it's interesting because I, I take your point around about the, you know, plurality, the majority of abortions not being in the most extreme context to the, the rape incest context. But it is also true that the Mississippi case that resulted in this uh, forthcoming decision did not have exclusions for rape and incest in those most extreme circumstances. Is that a, a messaging mistake, a, a political mistake for the people who are advocating for Roe to be overturned to have included the kinds of cases that make even, you know, pro-choice advocates blanch. I would say that no one would want, right, what you just said, to tell a woman who has been raped or has experienced incest that you must have that baby and just put it up for adoption. I think that is a careless, careless unempathetic way to approach that kind of uh, experience, which is the exception to the rule for a well, had been the exception to the rule for abortion. It's not just a messaging mistake. I think it's something that people have to look at around values, but that is the question. What is the extent to which the federal government should allow a woman to, you know, kill her uh, unborn child, fetus, baby, whatever you want to call it, which I would also like us to stop getting away from these euphemisms. Let's have real conversations about what is happening. Are we going to force women in this country to have children under certain circumstances, or are we going to leave it wide open where if a woman decides that she doesn't want to, for whatever reason, including all the different reasons from medical and her life and all of that, that she has the right to decide if she's going to give birth to a baby or not. I'd like us to just be really real about this. I can't see myself telling a person who's impregnated from rape or incest that you got to have this baby. There, we need to have a conversation about the extent to which government should fund that and allow women to make those decisions mm -hmm. themselves. But we have to do that in honest ways. And this hair on fire, it claiming it's more than it is, really doesn't get us where we need to go with these conversations. I mean, well, what we're really deciding, uh, we being the Supreme Court, if, if it goes this way, <laughs> is they are deciding that the democratic process, and then and thus the government, the legislatures uh, get to decide uh, this question. Uh, go ahead, Max. Want to get you in? Uh, you know, weigh in on on all this. What are you thinking? I don't know what conversation we're having, guys. I I, I just got to be honest here. The the question we started with is is this a form of class war? Yes, of course it's a form of class war. 
It's always been a form of class war. Abortions have been on the decline since the passing of Roe, but they have been increasingly concentrated among poor people. The predominant, like, you know, a lot of black and brown people in there. Mortality rates for giving birth. A black person is three to four times more likely to die during childbirth than a non-Hispanic white person. Indigenous people are two to three times more likely to die than a non-Hispanic white person. We just saw the statistics that the the biggest reason that people have for seeking an abortion is financial necessity at the same time that the Hyde Amendment after Roe v. Wade essentially targeted the very people who need those abortions the most because of that financial necessity by making it impossible for them to use Medicaid dollars to recoup expenses that they can't afford on their own. This is what work, poor and working class uh, people who can get pregnant are also always kind of saying. The, the, the out-of-pocket costs for t getting an abortion for many folks, working class folks, is a third of their monthly income. If you already have a kid, if you're already living close to the bone, you can't pay that. You also can't travel out of state if you happen to live in somewhere like Texas and then you have to wait two to three days to get an abortion. Like that option is more or less off the table. This is what Crystal Ball was trying to point out in that tweet. We all know, we've seen the data. We know that even before Roe, wealthier people are going to be able to get the care that they want and they need. Poor people are not. How is this not a form of class war? If we're going to have the honest conversation that you're calling for, Denise, let's stop like muddling the goddamn water and acknowledge the fact that this is a form of class war. It always has been a form of class war. Hmm. I well, would not disagree with that. But I was, what I will say is we don't champion aborting babies because black women are dying, what we look at what is causing that health inequity. We don't look at or champion aborting babies because women can't afford to have them, black women in particular. What we look at is what has caused and correct the underlying issues around their inability to afford to have a child and feel that aborting it is their only option. I am going to say it, and I've said it before, and I'll continue to say it again. 80% of the population in America who is black is freedmen. Reparations. We're not going to abort kids because because people can't afford to have them. And if the American government doesn't see the need to take care of American citizens, so we aren't making ridiculous choices about feeding our children, killing our children, or starving ourselves or of our own medicines, that is a huge problem. And it's a failure of our government that this is a level of conversation that we're having. And that is the reason that we're having it. I wholeheartedly agree with that. But the point is, again, they're not doing that. This is just like when, you know, people on the right, and I used to think this way when I was a conservative, it was just like, why are we worrying about, you know, X, Y, or Z, or why are we, like, you know, shuttling money to countries outside of the U.S. when our veterans are dying on the street, when veterans have, like, you know, high suicide rates and homeless rates and stuff like that? That's true, but it becomes this rhetorical widget to essentially avoid addressing the issue. I wholeheartedly agree with you that if we actually address but are we the substantive it, economic are we issues that create this cycle of poverty, that would fix a lot of these things. But the people who are pushing for this are not trying to fix that. So we're essentially still getting screwed. The class war is still on. No one's trying to fix it, not on the Republican or the Democratic side. So everyone in the bottom rung is getting screwed. Yeah. And why do we vote? Why do we vote? We, do we demand it? A, a large percentage of the American population that lives in the country that my ancestors built will tell me that I am lazy and that my people haven't worked hard. And the reason Black Americans are where they are is because, you know, we don't have bourgeois values, allegedly. We don't value education and all of these other stereotypical tropes while they sit in the country that slaves build, who 
seeded the industrial complex that allowed for the great wave of folk to come over here. While Black folks from other countries come to America and sit in our institutions and claim our Blackness and call us lazy. We don't have real conversations about what's going on in this country and people get their feelings hurt when we do. So for me, with all of this, let's stop the euphemisms, let's have the real conversations and let's let everybody know who is elected. You are getting voted out in 2022 and 2024 if a significant part of your political platform does not include the economic stability of American citizens. Are the majority of people willing to say that? Are the majority of people who sit in the country that my ancestors built willing to support my repair when they have been holding on to and been taken care of the, by the money that our families have not gotten? It's gross to even suggest that the reason is bootstrapping. Mm. It's gross to me to suggest that we have to kill kids because we can't afford them. Yeah. Max, we'll give you the last word quickly. Oh, uh, you know, that, that's that's totally cool. I think, <laughs> I think like, you know, the the. OK, so the, the last word I would give, right, is is to kind of pick up on Denise's point, right, about. This is a much bigger issue than electoral politics, and I think one of the, some of the most productive discussions right now are happening among folks who are saying, like, you know, clearly voting has not stopped this, right? So how can we help each other in our respective locales? What abortion funds can we donate to? What off what resources can we offer to people? That doesn't mean that we totally give up on the electoral realm, but I'm at least happy to see people saying we need to work together to help people who are in dire need right now. But I guess I would just say that, you know, as far as the electoral realm goes, again, I grew up conservative. I know how like Republicans think about this. Republicans have no way to justify the fact that their political program enriches and empowers a very small few while funneling all of us into this downward spiral so they have to uh, uh, trade in moral panics. That is why they do it all the time, whether they're in power or out of power. They turn working people against one another, but the Democrats don't get off scot-free here either. They have been fundraising and campaigning off of protecting Roe for my entire goddamn lifetime, and now we are all seeing that they failed. So what are they going to do? How, are they, how have they helped us? They have failed people, and both parties have failed people, and I am just... Livid, and I'm sorry to anyone who's watching this that our political establishment sucks so much, but don't lose your faith in other working people. Lean on each other. We are the ones who are going to get us out of this. Max and there's and an Denise, element of personal responsibility here as well. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Thank you. We'll be back with more Rising right after this. John Stewart is pushing for the Senate to pass the Honoring Our Pact Act. If passed, the legislation, which cleared the House in March, would immediately provide health care to post-9-11 veterans exposed to burn pits and other toxins. It would also ensure people exposed to contaminated drinking water at Camp Lejeune Marine Corps Base could sue for damages caused by the water. The contamination at the base began in the 1950s. The CDC reports that as many as one million military and civilian staff and their families may have been exposed to tainted water. The Marine Corps discovered the contamination in 1982. According to the Environmental Protection Agency, an extensive list of contaminants were found in the groundwater, surface water, sediment, and soil. 
The Department of Veterans Affairs says scientific and medical evidence has shown an association between exposure to contamination, the development of certain diseases, including risks of cancers, adverse birth outcomes, other adverse health effects. Right now, the VA says veterans may be able to receive disability benefits if they served at the base between 1953 and 1987. But North Carolina law prohibits people from taking legal action against polluters if more than 10 years have passed. Joining us now to discuss some of this and the importance of the Honoring Our Pact Act is epidemiologist and emeritus professor of environmental health at Boston University, Dr. Richard Clapp. And we're also joined by Mark, Mike Partain, who was born at Camp Lejeune and later diagnosed with breast cancer. Thank you both so much uh, for joining us. Good morning. You're Thank welcome. you. So, 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 Doctor, can you talk to us more about, you know, what, what are the range of effects, what people experience from, from the kind of contamination that went on? Maybe give us a little bit more specific detail about what the contamination was and how it affects people. Well, the, the contamination, primarily the two uh, most concentrated were trichloroethylene, which is a solvent that's used to degrease metal parts, and perchloroethylene, which is another solvent that's actually a dry cleaning solvent. And both of those have been uh, causes of various cancers. Kidney cancer is the most striking for the case of trichloroethylene, and various other cancers have been related to both of these solvents. There are other contaminants that were in the drinking water, but those are the most predominant. So there have been studies of people exposed to these chemicals around other parts of the world, in Europe especially, and in the U.S., and that's where this list of um, diseases that have been linked to these two solvents uh, came from. It's from especially studies in uh, other parts of the world. But there's also been studies of veterans themselves and Camp Lejeune veterans in particular that show increased risk of cancer. So all of that was why this list of diseases was created by the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry at the CDC and then, you know, forwarded to the VA for compensation or some kind of listing of uh, uh, compensation eligibility. Mike, if this contamination has been going on since the 1950s, why has it taken so long for victims to be compensated? And why is there still an ongoing fight about whether or not you can get past this uh, North Carolina law that bars, I, I assume, makes it installs a statute of limitations on environmental claims um, after 10 years? Well, when the Department of Justice sided with uh, CTS Corporation, a private polluter in North Carolina, and went to the Supreme Court to obtain their um, favorable ruling that basically allows them to dismiss the claims at Camp Lejeune, what that means to dependents such as myself, um, we would have had to turn in the claim for any damages or any cancers um, or health conditions uh, by 1995, because the Navy claims that that is 10 years after the last action of the polluter, which is what the, the statute, I mean, the uh, statute of repose does. In my case, I would have had to turn in a claim for a cancer I did not know I had mm. for an exposure that I did not know existed 12 years before it all happened. Yeah, that's unfortunately a common story when we're talking about these kind of environmental lawsuits, it, it, it is it is a built-in kind of systemic issue with the law, where because uh, of the statutes of limitation and the nature of causation being so attenuated and the nature of diseases not maturing for any given period of time, that so many people get caught up in these kind of systemic barriers to getting relief. Um, I, I'm curious also, how did John Stewart get involved in this advocacy and has it had any effect uh, on your ability to, to make your claim? 
Well, one thing, uh, when you mentioned the statute of um, limitations and everything, CERCLA does have uh, the Com Comprehensive Environmental um, Compensation Liability Act from 1980, does have and addresses a statute of limitations of two years from the time that you are aware of your exposure. So in mm. my case, I was diagnosed in 2007. Under CERCLA, I would have had until uh, April 2009 to turn in a claim. Um, the Supreme Court ruling with the statute of repose just, you know, backdates everything to 1995. So what happens is we end up creating a, um, you, you have a second class of citizen because like, for example, if my father, uh, God forbid, came down with kidney cancer, he would be compensated uh, through the VA. And if my mother or myself were to come down with um, kidney cancer, the only thing we're entitled to is healthcare as a last resort. If I become disabled, if I die, there's no benefits for my spouse or my family or myself, whereas my father, because he was a Marine, would be entitled to those benefits to the VA. Now, um, now we haven't spoken to John Stewart to answer, answer your question directly, mm. um, but I understand he's involved with the PACT Act, which we are a part of. Mm. Yeah, it's just, you know, the more you, this is not something people know enough about uh, this contamination that I was reading story, uh, pregnant uh, women who, who, who lost babies or, or babies who didn't uh, live very long. There's a stretch of the cemetery in Camp Lejeune known as Baby Heaven, hundreds of, of, uh, of, of babies, that, of infants that didn't make it. You know, uh, Dr. Clapp, can you talk a little bit about you know, the effects on, on pregnancy from this kind of contamination? Well, there is, there is scientific literature, scientific studies that dem demonstrate an increase in stillbirths in uh, women who's, who were exposed during pregnancy and their, their child was born without life. Um, and so that, and that's been seen in other parts of this country, in Massachusetts in particular, in the, the town called Woburn, Massachusetts, there was increase in stillbirths in trichloroethylene exposed women. Um, the births of, from such women. And then also on Cape Cod in Massachusetts, uh, another study of people who were exposed to perchloroethylene in their drinking water also had an increased risk of stillbirths. Another uh, adverse birth outcome is, is birth defects, uh, children born with a heart defect in particular. And that's been shown, especially in animal studies, that tri trichloroethylene in particular will cause um, cardiac defects, heart defects in the offspring of animals that are exposed in a, you know, experimental study. So these things are real and they've been shown in other places and other situations. So um, that's why I think it's valid that uh, people exposed at Camp Lejeune should, if their offspring had either of these outcomes, obviously stillbirths, they're born dead but uh, born with birth defects, uh, that, that, that's a legitimate claim. It's scientifically backed. Doctor, you mentioned a couple of these other locations, and I'm sure some listeners will be thinking that this is reminiscent of the stories we've heard in Flint, Michigan. Can you provide just a little more context about how common these instances of water um, contamination are across the country uh, for, for folks who think that it might just be these uh, isolated incidents? Well, the water contamination with chemicals is widespread. In fact, I mean, it depends on whether it's surface water or, or dug wells, you know, groundwater, but especially for uh, water supplies that are, you know, from groundwater, there's lots of chemical uh, contamination across this country. Another chemical that's been looked at recently is called PFAS, perfluorinated alkyl, alkyl substances. 
Um, and that has been found around military bases all across this country. Millions of people, tens of millions of people have been exposed to that drinking water contaminant. And trichloroethylene is found also in groundwater and therefore in drinking water that comes from the ground uh, in, I don't have the percentage, but a large number of uh, water supplies in this country as well. Dr. Clapp, Mr. Partain, thank you so much for joining us. This is such an important story and we appreciate you talking to us about it. You're very welcome. Here's an interesting story. The ACLU revealed under testimony that it wrote Amber Heard's domestic violence op-ed and timed its release with the debut of her film Aquaman. The group also testified that Heard has only paid them half of the money she promised from her divorce settlement with Johnny Depp. Yeah, so this is a this is a really uh, weird kind of thing that came out, obviously, of the, the trial right now, this this dispute, legal dispute between Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, who were married and are married no longer. And she had, uh, what was it? So she, he's suing her for defamation or libel in part stemming from this Washington Post op-ed uh, that, that alludes to domestic violence. And he's saying that was an accusation of domestic violence against her. And their, you know, their marriage, their relationship was very messy. There's some he said, he said, she said elements to it. I don't quite know what to make of it. Uh, they seem like very troubled people. But this was a weird revelation to me that this op-ed was part of an eight. The ACLU was very involved in crafting it. And then she had promised them money in exchange, like that she was going to donate to. So it's not in an illegal sense, but in a ethically gray sense. Right. It's, it's yeah. So I think the understanding was that she, you know, to deflect some of the whatever whatever criticism she might get for trying to exploit Johnny Depp for money and getting the settlement, she was going to give it to a worthy cause, you know. So that's that's why it's particularly untoward that she didn't actually even pay up. And the ACLU was, was like, "Yeah, sounds great." Right, well, <laughs> like, but like kinda... in a world, I think fundamentally in a world yeah. where she was in fact abused by Johnny Depp, and obviously I don't know what happened, but the the color of the stuff that's coming out of the testimony is really you know, uh, throwing, throwing her, her testimony, her credibility is, is kind of under the radar right now. Um, yes, very it, so. But in a world where she was being truthful and was being abused by Johnny Depp, an organization that is invested in protecting women and fighting for laws that help women in domestic disputes, helping her to craft an op-ed about her experiences wouldn't necessarily seem untoward. The problem is the ACLU is basically going on her word and not waiting for mm. any kind of legal mm. process to adjudicate who was actually telling the truth. And this kind of speaks to some of the bigger problems with Me Too. Cases that don't rise to criminality that are kind of adjudicated in the court of public opinion can lead to exactly these kind of perverse incentives and folks ending up thinking they're doing something good because they want to stand with victims, but the person who is claiming to be victimized isn't always, isn't always in fact, what they have represented themselves. And, and, and even if they are, the ACLU is supposed to stand for due process as well. So it's, it, I mean, it's just as you said. What do you think, Kim? Well, I'm curious if the ACLU could be potentially, uh, you know, if they could go after them for the defamation. I mean, mm -hmm. if they're the ones who actually wrote the article, uh, could they potentially be, you know, are they, I guess, guilty of libel potentially? You know, does or is it that, well, the burden of whether or not it was true you know, they were basically maybe writing it based on what Amber Heard said to them. Now, right. I get it. I'm not necessarily 
upset by them writing it. I don't think everybody's a writer. I think a lot of victims just have a story and they don't really know the most eloquent way to say it. So I'm not opposed to an organization coming in and saying, we can help you and we can help get your story out there. Um, I think where it becomes obviously kind of suspect is the money aspect. Like were they paid in a way to, you know, this kind of pre quid pro quo type situation with Amber, you know, was it like she came to them and said, okay, I'll give you all this money if you guys help me out because then it legitimizes her claims mm -hmm. and then, you know, maybe makes her look better in the situation against Johnny Depp. I don't know. That's a big question. I do know, though, um, in regards to her not paying the money to the ACLU, it wasn't because she was greedy. Apparently she did fall on really difficult financial time. She didn't have the money anymore to give them. And that might have to do with the fact she was being sued by mm. Johnny Depp, potentially. So, mm. um, you know, that and also the money that she did give, she did give half of the money that she promised. Half of that money, almost half of that money was actually given to the ACLU by Elon Musk. Yes. Who actually they were, gave her the money. And they that were in a relationship. Boyfriend. Yeah, he was in love with her. He talked about after the breakup that it was really tough on him. But um, he kind of swooped in and tried to be the hero a little bit. And he also tried to make an arrangement saying Clearly, that yeah. she would make these payments to the ACLU over a 10 year time period. You know, that that's when she would get that money to them. But she fell on hard time. She's being sued. Um, but, I, you know, I'm curious if you think that the ACLU, you know, did they do. Is this more of a problem for them that they would accept this sort of like okay, you're going to give us some money. We're going to put this out there. We're going to use our influence to get this published in a big publication to get, we're going to get it pressed by making sure we time it with your movie release. I mean, is this a bad look for the ACLU or do you think this wor looks worse for Amber? I think it's, no, I think it is kind of a bad look for the ACLU. I guess the timing it with the movie release isn't, uh, I don't, that's I mean, not that's really a problem. Right, right. That's just good comp. They want to get as, mo the, the, as, as much attention for it as they can, but it, it is reflective. It's reflective of exactly what Brianna was saying. The, they're kind of, uh, you know, the ACLU on Me Too stuff has kind of been in a place that I'm not comfortable with as, as someone who thinks we have to be very cognizant of due process, you know, when just accusations are being leveled. Some accusations not rising to the level of criminal conduct anyway. Yeah, so, and then there you know, is no you, due process. Right, it's like there isn't. cultural due yeah. process, but there's but no. that's something the ACLU kind of purports to stand for. Well, the, or has. The, I mean, this this is the fundamental issue. We're all, everyone is being asked to declare definitively what they know about something, and then your morality is being judged on yeah. what side of the line you're on. And individuals are being asked to be prosecutors, detectives, private investigators, police officers, getting to the bottom of what happened between people, perhaps years before. And there is all of this public pressure to make a statement and to take a position. And so mm -hmm. I think some of the worst kind of Me Too offenses, it hasn't been the the Harvey Weinsteins and all of that that get lit, you know borne out in a court of law and we feel kind of confident that justice is meted out in those contexts. It's the weird Aziz Ansari, mm -hmm. uh, Al Franken instances where there's no good way to understand, okay, even if you agree that somebody did something bad, how bad is it? What is the metric? What does accountability look like? What does penance look like? What does rehabilitation look like outside of the context of the carceral system? And because we can't have, we don't have conversations about that because there's so much like moral stickiness around it, you end up having either cast somebody out entirely who's done something like negligible, like Aziz Ansari, or you are accused of, you know, siding with someone who is kind of maximally wrong. Everyone gets conflated into being Harvey Weinstein. Or all the or all the campus cases. I mean, there were very real 
changes made to Title IX adjudication to sexual misconduct disputes between students in educational settings on college campuses. There, were, there was a lot of new guidance, and I, I've talked about this a lot in previous uh, radars. Uh, Emily Jashinsky has as well. We followed these subjects closely. Under the Obama administration, there were a lot of changes that, that, that were in the, in the legal system or the way these were being handled that I thought, and Emily Jasinski thinks as well, really undermined uh, due process protections that, that should exist for people accused in those situations, which are sometimes very ambiguous situations. And the Trump administration uh, reversed some of those changes. It was one of one of the policies of the Trump Education Department that I, I most vigorously supported was them undoing those changes. And the ACLU, which I would have expected under in a, under different circumstances to be all for defending you know, the rights of even the accused in those circumstances were not only insufficiently committed, but actually spoke out against uh, some of the changes. So it's that kind mm-hmm. of, uh, it's that kind of uh, refocusing on, on what the priorities are uh, in order to appease, I, I assume, you know, the new kind of woke employees, or maybe I, I think it's more their employees than anyone else. Uh, is a is a is a, a concern that again I've raised and well, Emily as well. And check out those past radars if you curious. Donors, I would say they're donors. They definitely. I think it's more important. Yeah. Well, it's I'm sure it's donors to some degree, but I think it's I think it's literally employees. It's the young staffers they bring on who say, "Wait a minute, I thought I I signed on to fight the Trump administration. You said there's something the Trump administration does that's actually good. That does not compute. No, we have to be against that." Well, and I think that what they, what happened was they actually saw their donations increase quite a bit under that, the Trump administration. Yeah. 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 Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Well, anyway, it's an it's an interesting case and the whole Johnny Depp Amber Heard thing is uh, is 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 very interesting. We should probably uh, look at it more closely maybe next week. Uh, anyway, we'll have more rising right after this. Kim, what's on your radar? Well, just when you thought the COVID-19 pandemic was a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience with the shutdowns, mandated masks, required vaccines and passports, Bill Gates comes along and says, not so fast. Turns out COVID-19 was just one of many possible pandemics we might experience. But don't worry, you don't need to live in fear. Bill Gates has a plan. If we make the right investments, we won't need to live in fear of another COVID. We can build a health system that is ready to stop outbreaks before they go global. Here's how it should work. Epidemiologists will detect suspicious clusters of a disease that could cause a pandemic. A global team of 3,000 disease experts managed by the WHO called the Germ Team will track the disease and share data and recommendations with governments. Governments and pharmaceutical companies will work together to use factories all over the world to get an unprecedented scale of diagnostics and vaccines very quickly. We'll have an agreed protocol and we'll understand how to share the results globally. Countries and the WHO will work in the best way to allocate these tools and to make sure that we have the logistics and delivery to get them to everyone who needs them. The key to be ready for a potential pandemic is to practice. And so this germ team will work with each country to do germ games, drills where you see, are you ready? Could you get the diagnostics out? So we're ready to go when we see the outbreak. Diseases are always going to spread among humans. 
but they don't have to become pandemics. You can read more about this in my new book, How to Prevent the Next Pandemic. All right, well, he calls it the GERM team, G-E-R-M, which stands for Global Epidemic Response and Mobilization Initiative. He says the team would be managed by the World Health Organization. Besides nations who contribute, the top non-government donors to the WHO are the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance. But interestingly, Gavi's top donor is the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So basically, it could be argued that the boss of the WHO is Bill Gates. So essentially, he'd be in charge of preventing future pandemics. Now, Gates says one of the goals of the germ team is to prepare a plan to stop outbreaks before they go global. Okay, well, how do you stop a virus from spreading? What did we learn during this pandemic? We've learned it's nearly impossible to do, except in one circumstance, which is to do something similar to what China has done. Extreme, aggressive, and very authoritarian lockdowns. Now, if you're lucky, you're on an island that can close off its borders to prevent the virus from coming in, in which case maybe life would go on somewhat as normal, minus travelers, imports and exports. But most of the world is not an island and viruses are invisible. So trying to stop one from spreading would require, if it's even possible at all, a total China-style lockdown. Is that the idea? Or another way to stop a virus is to create a sterilizing vaccine that actually prevents the spread, if one could even be created at all. Now, Bill Gates says big pharma and governments would work together under his plan to whip out a vaccine, just like they did for COVID. The big question is, would they work with governments to mandate them again and require people to take them or lose their jobs and lose their ability to participate in society? Would they once again neglect treatment options? Would they look into repurposing generic drugs or even into natural options like promoting a healthy lifestyle? Or would it just be that because governments and organizations like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation heavily invested in new vaccines that they'd once again pursue a vaccine or bust strategy? Another thing Gates says the germ team would do is detect suspicious clusters of diseases. They would then monitor them and do what they can to prevent them from spreading to pandemic levels. Well, that sounds like on its surface a good idea. Obviously, preventing a pandemic from happening at all is better than trying to deal with it once it's reached that level. But again, the question is, how do we prevent a virus from reaching pandemic levels when, first of all, the only possible but not bulletproof way to do it is through radical measures, and secondly, new viruses pop up all the time. Every few years we hear about a new virus like the bird flu or swine flu, SARS or Ebola. Now, luckily these viruses didn't turn out to spread to levels authorities first presumed, but that's exactly the problem. If the new strategy is to implement radical measures to prevent pandemics each time a new virus is presumed to spread to pandemic levels, we could be seeing COVID-19 level measures every few years. They'd say they don't know which one is going to turn into the next COVID-19. So the only logical thing to do is to treat them all like they'd become the next COVID-19. Well, it turns out these radical measures we've been living through are exactly Bill's plan. In a blog post, Bill writes, quote, imagine a scenario like this, a a concerning outbreak is rapidly identified by local public health agencies. If a threat is detected, governments sound the alarm and initiate public recommendations for travel, social distancing, and emergency planning. They start using the blunt tools that are already on hand, such as quarantines, antivirals that protect against almost any strain, and tests that can be performed anywhere. If this isn't sufficient, 
Then the world's innovators immediately get to work developing new tests, treatments, and vaccines. Diagnostics, in particular, ramp up extremely fast so that large numbers of people can be tested in a short time. New drugs and vaccines are approved quickly because we've agreed ahead of time on how to run trials safely and share the results. Once they're ready to go into production, manufacturing gears up right away because factories are already in place and approved. Bill Gates goes on to say no one gets left behind because we've already worked out how to rapidly make enough vaccines for everyone. Everything gets where it's supposed to, when it's supposed to, because we've set up systems to get to get products delivered all the way to the patient. Communications about the situation are clear and avoid panic. And this all happens quickly, he says. The goal is to contain outbreaks outbreaks within the first 100 days before they ever have the chance to spread around the world. If we had stopped the COVID pandemic before 100 days, he says, we could have saved over 90% of the lives lost. Okay, now maybe that's all true that we could have spared lives from being lost from the virus, but what about the other harms the lockdowns and the depressing of the global economy has caused? People didn't get the cancer diagnosis they needed on time. Depression and suicide went through the roof, so did drug overdoses. Violent crime is way up, the list goes on. This is on top of the total neglect to find treatment options or adequately test existing ones. We're now over 700 days into this pandemic, and we're still speculating about the virus and even learning more about the vaccines. Bill talks about communication being clear to avoid panic, yet we can't even agree about the effectiveness as something as simple as a mask. So, Robbie and Brianna, what's most concerning to me is the amount of influence Bill Gates has over global health. The New York Times has reported how experts inside the public health and medical sector may disagree with Bill Gates on a variety of things. But because of his massive donations to nearly every influential health organization, you've got him at Johns Hopkins, Imperial College of London, Mayo Clinic, he's everywhere. They fear that they would lose their jobs or their entity would lose its funding. They've actually dubbed it the Bill Chill. So he's insanely influential. And I also think it's mind boggling with that influence that Bill Gates would look at the lockdowns and the mandates and think that this worked out so well, he now wants to double down on it. It's terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. The lesson I took from this pandemic is we can never do this again. We can never again delegate so much authority to close down society, to mass society, to forcibly vaccinate society to to totally unaccountable and even if they are theoretically accountable they don't behave as if they're accountable uh, elite policymakers epidemiologists health officials and then people like bill gates who just have a lot of money either don't have any actual formal role in the health process but just by virtue of having bought their way into it uh, and and you know the the kinds of people who clearly fetishize the level of authoritarian control that, for instance, a country like China has to pursue a zero COVID strategy forever, no matter how how badly the people suffer. Yeah, look, I'm very sympathetic and completely agree that Bill Gates's influence in this sector is not based on merit and is unproductive and seems like in this context, the the clip you showed, a a weird money grab to sell his book, which I feel like that is not something that he needs to do um, to get more book royalties uh, as one of the richest men on the planet. But I am a little concerned that some of the mistakes that have been made in the context of this pandemic, which I roundly agree with are a problem, 
are a reason not to try to make the system better for the next time. I think a world where we had, uh, we avoided some of the supply chain issues when it came to getting um, protective gear, when it came to uh, getting masks, a lot of the mask confusion and the, the misrepresentations about the efficacy of masks was about them wanting to save, you know, PPE for uh, nurses and doctors. That is obviously wrong and they should not have done that. But a plan that starts to say, oh, we can make these kinds of materials at home. We have stockpiles. We have the, the kind of ventilator machines and the intubation machines. We have a, a staff up doctors and have more hospital beds. The fact that the idea that we would be more ready next time for a pandemic that we should all remember has killed uh, coming up on a million Americans. I don't think is a bad thing. And I would just push back a little against the idea that any plan to improve upon the process just because it is being overseen by the government or in relationship to the government because of its ability to you know, manage that kind of broad scale action is necessarily bad. Well, I don't think, you know, we're not talking about avoiding any plan. It's just his plan. His plan yeah. is very specific. He says he wants to use the blunt tools that we use during this pandemic, which includes social distancing and quarantines and rapidly deploying vaccines and saying that, oh, yes, they're fine. They're adequately tested that it, you can't you can't speed up long term testing. That's just not possible. The whole point of long term is you need to know you need, you need time uh, and, and you can't speed that up. So he what he is saying in this book, apparently, I have not read his book, but just reading his <laughs> blog post, watching his video, um, he is talking about using the same tactics that China is using, that China has been using, essentially. And there are a lot of people who agree with Bill Gates. And I don't know how you feel about it, Brianna, but a lot of people feel like, had we just done what China did right from the beginning, had we gone full on with lockdowns, chaining people into their homes, saying you cannot come out. And if you do come out, you have to be wearing a bubble suit. Uh, and if you're sick, you get taken away to a facility where all sick people can be together, you know, like in an actual quarantine facility. Some people believe had we done that, we could have stopped this pandemic. Uh, it seems like Bill Gates maybe believes that. The problem is, is that again, every few, I mean, in my lifetime alone, it's been the ones that I've just rattled off off the top of my head, bird flu, swine flu, SARS-1, Ebola. That's just in my lifetime alone. I couldn't imagine doing this five times over as right. it is already by 40 years old. But the scale of those were dramatically different than the scale of COVID. The number of deaths that have occurred under COVID is significantly different, right? And so I'm not saying that the same response would be necessary to meet those other crises. Those didn't even really result in crises. How many people were affected by swine flu? I felt like that was more of a media creation than this, which has resulted in a million deaths. And only because, and that number has only petered off because of this vaccine. And I, I very much hear some of the concerns about uh, the vaccine effects, the new study that came out that validated people's concerns over it, creating these heart problems. You know, I, you know, full disclosure, scheduled a cardiologist appointment a couple of weeks ago because I was feeling some concerns about post-vaccine effects. But I also have to think about it. I'm looking forward to more studies coming out about what the trade-offs are the trade-offs are between how many deaths might have occurred had the vaccine not come out. And I think I, I certainly encourage people to be thinking about how to mediate those effects. If we can be sent bubble suits and groceries at home so that I can voluntarily stay home and I have a check that, so that if I can't go into my job, I can sustain my mortgage and rent and things, I wouldn't mind that because to me that is giving people a carrot as opposed to a stick to 
adopt the kind of behaviors that could prevent the spread of a disease. So I think some of those things that China did that were not coercive but persuasive might be a good idea. Other things that are more draconian and authoritarian and were forced upon the population, less so. I, I might push back just in that little way, but I, 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 this is this is a fascinating take. They can, they can leave my uh, bubble suit at the factory. <laughs> they don't need to need to send me one. Uh, yeah, who's going to get you that bubble suit? Who's going to make it for you? Who's going to deliver your groceries? Yeah, you know, there's no, like people no that still you. have to operate in an underground, no, second you. class, you know, society. So yeah, but yeah. Uh, well, uh, hopefully we don't have to do this again. That's just my ultimate point. Please, with Bill Gates. Please, Bill Gates no. being so highly influential. I don't know if yeah. this is the last of all of this that we've seen. So, All right. Well, thank you very much, Kim. And we'll be back in just a minute with more Rising. Comedian Dave Chappelle was actually attacked during a performance last night at the Hollywood Bowl. This is according to the Los Angeles Police Department. So far, we know that a 23-year-old man was arrested, and Dave is, of course, fine. NBC News Los Angeles reports that the man was armed with a replica gun that, quote, can eject a knife blade when discharged correctly. It wasn't immediately clear if he tried to use the weapon. Police said that Chappelle was not injured in the incident. Yeah, and he, he continued performing after the incident, so he was, he was okay. Um, well, the obvious implication is that this is the door that was opened by, by the slap, uh, the slap heard around the world. You know, it, it is also the case that when we were having the conversation about the, clap, the slap, many comedians pointed out that they had been attacked previously. It wasn't the first time that a comedian's ever been hit for a joke and by, for telling a joke. And it will be interesting to see what the person's motives actually were in attacking Dave Chappelle and what Dave Chappelle has to say as more news comes out. Yeah, if it's just some crazy person, if it's some person that does feel emboldened by the slap, which that could be, I guess. Or so obviously, you know, Dave Chappelle is now someone who is kind of in intensely disliked by, like, the wokest of the woke, the transgender activist community for jokes he's made uh, on that, he thinks he said on that front. So, you know, theoretically, it could be if someone's motivated by that. We have no idea. This is wild speculation. Yeah. Well, I don't know if if people who have substantive critiques of of Dave Chappelle's jokes, that many of which are pretty pointed, I would describe as just being woke. I think there's some diversity among the people who are frustrated with some of of Dave, Ch Dave Chappelle's humor. There were jokes, for instance, in his com latest comedy special about him getting into a fist fight with a lesbian because he was flirting with her her girlfriend and all of this kind of thing. I mean, there are a lot of reasons people could be um, upset. That doesn't justify, obviously, anybody bringing a knife on stage and attacking a comedian. But people might also argue, you know, some people might argue that it's Will Smith that opened this door. Some people might argue that the uh, kind of vilification of, of Dave Chappelle, whether or not you think it was justified, made people feel like he was the kind of person who you are entitled to hit, which is, I think, a very different kind of framing that was, that was going on with uh, Will Smith and uh, Chris Rock. Absolutely different framing, but a, a framing that is real when, you know, certain aspects of the left, of progressives, come, the whole it is okay to punch Nazis sort of ideology, uh, then, like, if you think that, then you ought to be pretty cautious about who you, if, if suddenly you're saying it is legitimate to use violence against people who say things I don't like if they're Nazis, then you would want to define Nazi very specifically. But of course, these people are the people inevitably who end up saying anyone to their right, which is literally everyone, 
is a Nazi, and thus it's okay to just punch anyone you disagree with, which is you know a phenomenon we see among some of these kinds of left-wing activists. People and sentiments that are, I see expressed by again not most progressives or most liberals or most people, but a handful of. I would describe as activist type people, particularly around uh, surrounding uh, transgender issues. Yeah, I guess my I which probably, I have no idea if that's what this right. was. At we all, don't but. we don't know what this is. And again, I think part of Dave Chappelle's frustration was that the point he was trying to make in this special was that there are a lot of people who are maligned in the public sphere and that are not defended in the same way that the trans community is defended by a certain liberal subset mm-hmm. of the public sphere. And the point that he was making in a special, whether or not you think he made it in the right or appropriate way, or that he had to make it in a way that was at the expense of trans people, was that he tells joke, He told jokes about punching women, he told jokes about black people, he told jokes about crackheads, he tells sexist jokes, he tells racist jokes. He told a joke about, uh, I think, COVID and Asian Americans early on in the special. And none of those get the same kind of pushback. And the fact that we're all even presuming that this was someone who was angered by his comments about trans people and not angered by any of the many, many other offensive things he said about other groups in the special kind of proves this point in a perverse sort of a way. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think we have uh, we have a actually photo now of the alleged attacker. We can put that up on screen. So that's the allegedly the person um, who was taken into custody, I believe. And uh, more interesting detail, Chris Rock was there at the show and apparently got up on stage uh, to assist. And I think- Wait, really? Yeah. That, that feels like a punchline of a joke. I'm sorry, Chris Rock. Was at the Dave. This is according to TMZ. Chris Rock was there. According to TMZ, Chris Rock was there, and that he uh, he hugged uh, um, Chappelle afterwards. (laughs) Was that Will Smith? (laughs) Which is funny. (laughs) Oh, life is stranger than fiction. Yeah, fun stuff. All right, we'll have more rising after this. The fallout of Justice Alito's abortion draft leak has many questioning what other rights might be upended if the high court does indeed overturn Roe v. Wade. As USA Today notes, the legal principles that the Supreme Court said in 1973 are the basis for the right to abortion are the same ones it relied on to recognize other rights not explicitly noted in the Constitution. The potential impacts go beyond abortion to things like contraception, same-sex marriage, and custody rights. While we won't know the court's official ruling in another month or so, here to break down what this all might mean is public defender and commentator Eliami Aluren. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, great to have you. So Eliami, you know, where do you uh, weigh in on all this? What, what other rights are, are you concerned or that, that might be... Uh, threatened under a regime where there's no more row and the issues are turned back to the states? You know, a significant amount of rights are actually threatened by this because, as Alito put it, uh, the right to an abortion is not explicitly mentioned in the Constitution or, as he says, rooted in our nation's history, which a lot of the rights that we depend on are. So, you know, it's funny because people have long been worried of what a conservative majority on the Supreme Court would mean for our rights and our civil liberties. And here comes this this sweeping opinion. And, you know, should this should this be the law? Should this opinion go the way that we've read it? Right. And I think the issue with it from the beginning 
beginning starts with Alito presents this, the right to abortion as a mere intellectual exercise, as a disagreement among three different groups um, that he has to decide in favor of the school of thought he prefers rather than a real issue that impacts real people. You know, he positions himself as a sort of champion of states' rights. The argument he makes is prior to deciding Roe versus Wade, the states were free to make the decisions for abortions. And by deciding Roe versus Wade, we've somehow robbed the states of their free will. So to that, I would ask, what about the free will of actual human beings who've exercised this right to choose whether or not they want an abortion for the last almost 50 years? You know, where is the free will in forcing women to go through pregnancies, motherhood, all of the complications, risks, and associated costs that the state will not deal with or help them with? You know, he says that we should overturn Roe in order in order to let states uh, step in. And I think he puts, do as their citizens wish. But this has nothing to do with what citizens wish or free will, because as it currently stands, people have this constitutional right to choose whether or not they want an abortion. Abortion does not, Roe versus Wade does not force people to have an abortion. It doesn't force a decision on them. What it does is prevent the state from forcing its will onto people. So. Uh, he compares the decision to Plessy versus Ferguson, which is an absurd comparison, but he makes it because he says both decisions were egregiously wrong from the jump. There, We shouldn't even really humor this comparison, but I want to say this. While Plessy versus Ferguson in, you know, confers a badge of inferiority amongst an entire group of people, Roe versus Wade does not do that. Um, and so this is an issue. This is going to be a major issue because so many, so many of our rights, the right to contraception, the right to contraception, the right to choose uh, an education, uh, so, so many rights have been based in this exact same framework of substantive due process. And so we should be concerned. But I would say this, in the same way that he says that there's no explicit mention to the right to an abortion in the Constitution, there's also no explicit mention to nine justices serving on the Supreme Court. So I think now we need to start having a conversation about how we circumvent the consequences of this. Yeah, Eli, I, mean, I think that's a good point that I brought up in my radar that so much of what we think of as kind of the norms in terms of constitutional practice are either recent inventions or were no long, in no way indicated by the Constitution in the first place. The right of the court to even do judicial review comes from Marbury v. Madison. It was a judicial fiat in and of itself. And people are questioning about whether or not we need more substantive reform. This case is interesting because this, Roe is one of the few instances where the judicial activism has like swung in the direction of what we consider to be progressive interests and protecting, um, you know, broader, like historically persecuted minorities. But isn't the problem here fundamentally that legislators haven't actually codified any of this in law? Should we be relying on an institution like the Supreme Court, which is kind of fundamentally by its design, regressive, always looking back to see what the founding fathers say, fundamentally institutional, uh, um, originalism, textualism is all about trying to find some contemporary issue, an answer to a contemporary issue in a document that was written 200 years ago. Should we be even playing these games with the Supreme Court and relying on it in the way that the left has been doing? No, I absolutely don't think we should. We shouldn't be, you know, heralding the Supreme Court as some kind of champion of civil liberties at all. And I think there's a dangerous game with originalism and framers' intent. You know, when Alito and people in general, when they discuss what the framers intended or what's rooted in our nation's history, we have to remember that the framers never intended a significant amount of groups and a significant part of our population to have any of these rights or protections. So it's dangerous to say, hey, we've relied on these rights for 50 years and, you know, the majority of the country might support it, which they do. The majority of the country does support the right to abortion and different protections that we have that are going to come that have come in the form of substantive due processes cases um, saying, oh, it's not rooted in our nation's history. So we're going to get rid of this right. What does that mean for the rest of us? 
it's it's a very very dangerous game so no we should not be relying on the court well I, I guess i would say to play devil's advocate right a majority of the country thinks that abortion should be legal in many circumstances but that there should be some restrictions in some circumstances and within a absent row that question is now put back to legislatures at, to enact the will of the people in some sense this is getting rid of the decision or reversing the decision uh, adds more uh, democratic accountability or, or, or democratic governance to the process of deciding what is the right level of abortion to permit in the country or in the states. So, so I guess that, w- that would be my you know, counter to this perspective you're offering. But isn't the will of the people exercised in choice, right? If we're concerned about people, people getting re- uh if we're concerned about um, people being able to do it, do what they want, or what uh, reflects the majority of the population, and what people would like to see, as it currently stands, if we have the right to abortion, every individual is free to decide whether or not they want to engage in it at all, right? So, uh, getting rid of the right to abortion only opens us up to more states regulating it or completely banning it. That's what's going to happen in some places. Not, not this um, situation where we just get a little bit more regulation. That's not what's going to happen. People, well, people. Yeah, I oh, mean, sure, I, right. I mean, that's what I mean. That's what governments do. They put limits on people's rights. I, I, they put lots of limits on lots of rights. I don't think but that's should be put on. But. The, the whole point of the Bill of Rights is that it protects the people against those right. kind of offensive rights. So the, the freedom of speech. Well, this is isn't the one freedom, of them. It's not written in there. Right. It's not one the, of them. The freedom of speech. You know how many is, rights aren't listed in the right? In, in, right. In the that's why we have the Ninth Amendment. The Ninth Amendment says this list is not total. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. In everything, right. other things might come up, and so that's why we have these substantive due process rights that are read through the 14th Amendment. And that has been the basis of a whole number of protections that didn't exist back when the founding fathers were doing their thing because, you know, they were busy owning slaves and not understanding what penicillin was. It's a baseline and there there are more things, but you can't, it's just not in there. It's not in there. That's not saying it shouldn't be a right, but it's not in there. So here's the question, Ola. So go ahead, Kim. No, 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 you go ahead. You go. You guys finish this one up. <laughs> this part of the, this part of the no, conversation. I, just, I, I do think this is, this is the point. We're always going to be having this argument about what the Constitution says and what the Founding Fathers meant, as long as we're still reliant on the Constitution. So I do have some empathy for an argument that was made, you know, by Glenn Greenwald a, a couple of days ago that basically said, hey, like, this is the purpose of the Constitution. It was supposed to be this check on power. It is anti-majoritarian. It's not about the, pop, the freedom's will. And I say, okay, fine. When are we then going to have a more substantive conversation about why the Democrats have not legislated abortion law that's been around since the 1970s? Why are we trying to find a substantive, you know, privacy, right? Like, I'm glad those cases came out the way they did. I'm glad gay people can get married. I'm glad, you know, gay sex isn't illegal. But why are we relying on reading between the lines of a bunch of people who never contemplated such a thing as gay marriage to establish these fundamental rights instead of having a, a system that's flexible enough for our democratic will to result in laws and even substantive changes to the Constitution? Or better yet, yeah. I think when we talk about framers' intent and originalism and what is rooted in our nation's history, why don't we have the honest conversation that many our framers did not intend for the protections and rights that we now afford? The current civil society that we live in was not intended by our framers. Me and Brianna sitting up here talking to y'all <laughs> was not intended by our framers. So it's a very dangerous Kim game either. that we pretend. We, Kim yeah. either, right? 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 Only Robbie's supposed to be up here talking according to the framers. I'm sure I, I would have been dragged through the streets for some kind of heretical opinion I had. It's, it's not. Right. It's, the pitchforks sure would have come for Robbie. Let's all I'm be sure clear. I'm sure they would have bought you eventually, Robbie. <laughs> 
But they would have got the rest of our hair from the jump. And that is the point. We can't just say in the year 2022, rights that we have had that reflect the current civil society that we live in should go away because the framers didn't intend them or they're not rooted in our nation's history. And a dangerous game he does is he says, you know, because the right to abortion had been previously criminalized, that's grounds to get rid of the right now. Do you know how many things have been previously criminalized? Like, I mean, right. like, right. yeah, we're in a we're in a very, very dangerous game. If that if we go by the, the, the argument that if it's not rooted in our nation's history, if we have a previous history of criminalizing it, then, oh, that shouldn't be a right. And we should let let the states do whatever dangerous game. It means a dangerous game, just uh, not just for uh, people relying on the right to abortion, but any marginalized group that need these protections. And that's why this is scary. You know, people have been called alarmist for being very, very concerned about this conservative majority, but we see that come into fruition. Alaymi, I wanted to ask you uh, before we wrap what you make of people like Janine Pirro who are calling for the incarceration of whoever it was that leaked this, uh, leaked this opinion. Child, first of all, who cares? Uh, who <laughs> in my my personal opinion, I don't care who leaked it at all. But I think that's ridiculous. Um, I've seen that argument. I even I think it was Roberts talking about how this um, challenges the integrity of the court. The fact that this opinion was leaked, I think the contents of the opinion is what challenges the integrity of the court, and I rather focus on that. Yeah, I, I don't think the person should be prosecuted. I don't know what you'd even prosecute them for. Um, who they did? Like, probably who? lose their job and then go on to be a hero to progressives forever. <laughs> Do it and be legends kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Alimi, thank you so much for joining us. Tomorrow on Rising, writer Matt Stoller details how a Time Warner merger led to censorship. And we'll continue covering the SCOTUS memo leak as well as the big news of the day. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And be sure to follow us wherever you follow your podcasts. Download us so that you can listen to us on the go. Thanks so much for watching, guys. We will see you tomorrow.